I am so grateful to be back in Ruston, Louisiana. We had a wonderful trip. I was sharing Wednesday night about that. A wonderful trip. Uh, spiritually, it was awesome in so many ways. It was also challenging because of Dale and Dwight and Rodney and Rick and Ivan, and I could continue to go on. It was spiritually challenging, but it was a great trip, and I am proud to be home. I'm grateful for those who have, uh, who have filled in uh, over the last couple weeks, and I know they have done so ably. I missed uh, my kids. My wife was with me. I missed my little ones, and I missed you. I was thinking about it this last week that it is, it is um, tough for me to miss two Sundays of gathering together with the family of God here at Temple because I so enjoy being with the family, being with you all. And I enjoy being able to stand behind this pulpit. I was just reminded again what a privilege this is for me that God granted me not based on my works or based upon my qualifications, but by his grace, he allows me to stand behind this pulpit every Sunday. And I am grateful for that. I'm grateful to be able to be able to be back here with you all today. So with that said, take your Bible. Look, if you will, in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. As we continue the work of God, as we see it continue, the mission, the purpose of God, how it just continues to extend into different areas and eventually, as we know, to the world's end. That's really what Jesus had said, right? He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. I felt like I was in those uttermost parts this week. And there's still a testimony of Christ there as God's mission and God's purpose was fulfilled. But he did it systematically. You hear it in Jesus' words again in Acts 1-8, as I quoted a moment ago. You notice how he systematically moved to different areas, to different places, so that the gospel would go forth and it would take root in each area, whether it was Jerusalem. But Jerusalem, again, the place that was so hostile to Christians. Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus was crucified. That's where they would begin their witness. And then they would go into Judea and they would go into Samaria and to the uttermost. In other words, there was a progression. There was a systematic work of God. And here in Acts chapter 8, we see the second phase, you might call it, of this mission. Now, you'll remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how the Jewish people, how the Jewish leadership, let me say that, the Jewish leadership began to really push back against the early believers. And they began to bring quite the persecution to them. We were told about this man, this deacon named Stephen, who stood and became the first martyr of the church because of his testimony, his faith in the Lord Jesus. And it says from that that the church began to spread out because of the persecution, because of all the difficulties. Get this. This is good, isn't it? Because all that Satan was trying to do against the church, God actually took those things and he used it to expand his kingdom. I love that about our God. He is so good and he is so great that he can take that which was meant to be evil and he can use it for the good. 
And in Acts chapter 1 and even following, you will see where that persecution actually helped the kingdom grow. It actually moved people out. And there was one named Philip who was a fellow deacon of Stephen who began to go into that region called Samaria. This was phase two. This was phase two of what God intended in his church and within his people. But it was a phase that would come with many obstacles, that would face many barriers. And yet, the gospel of Christ overcame them all. Look again, if you will, Acts chapter 8. Let's look just at verse 5. Just at verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. So again, at this point, the church is made up of basically Jewish individuals. Now, some were Hellenistic. That, were, that meant that they were Greek-speaking. I was reminded of that over and over when I was gone, okay? Hellenistic, Greek-influenced, Greek-speaking. So Philip was a Greek-speaking Jew, and he is going to Samaria in order to preach Christ, in order to preach Jesus. Well, those of you who are students of the Scripture... When you hear the word Samaria, or you hear the word Samaritan, you probably should stop for a moment and begin to realize what a big deal this is, that that one that comes from a Jewish background would enter into such a territory to preach Jesus. You and I should be, we should stop a moment and say, whoa, this is a big deal. Why? Why? Because, again, if you're a student of Scripture, you know that the Samaritans and the Jews did not see eye to eye. In fact, there was much hostility between the two. It's hard for us to get that, maybe. Because today, when we use the word Samaritan, we're speaking in a positive manner, right? If someone were to be a Samaritan, you would probably uh, think of good character, you would think of somebody that was compassionate and benevolent, somebody that had helped someone else, right? That's the way we think about it. Not so in that early church. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. I believe that the hatred was mutual. That, yes, the Jews looked at the Samaritans as a type of impure ethnic breed. But the Samaritans, they looked at the Jews and they saw a prideful, sinful group of individuals who had been so harsh to them through the years. There was a hatred. There was a racial bias. There was a prejudice. And listen, this is a racial barrier that was overwhelming and in so many ways threatening to the movement of the gospel. Because here we begin to decide, is Jesus just the king of an ethnic group, one ethnic group called the Jews? Or is Jesus going to be the king of all ethnicities, of all nations? And Philip, as he has been moved and transformed by the work of the Lord Jesus, he has decided 
that this is the Messiah, the Christ, for the Samaritans, and ultimately for the Gentiles, for all who will hear. So he goes to preach Christ. I want you again to, to think about these barriers that were there, especially in the racial barrier, the, the cultural barrier, the religious barrier that you'll find between the Jews and the Samaritans. Where did the Samaritans come from again? I want you to, I want you to take a little bit of a walk with me down the history lane. Can you do that this morning? Some of you said, I knew I was going to get that stuff when you came back. I see it in you. Some of you, you realized. You know, I had a professor one time at Blue Mountain College. She taught me English. She was the chair of the English department, Dr. Betty. I loved her. I loved her with everything I had. And she, she told me one day, she said, Reg, she said, you know these churches when they're looking for preachers, they need to make sure they don't get preachers that's had Greek or been to the Holy Land. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean by that, Dr. Betty? She said, well... If you get a preacher that's had Greek or been to the Holy Land, that's all you ever hear from in the pulpit. That's all they ever talk about is Greek or the Holy Land. You'll never hear anything else. So now I put Greece on my list, all right? So, but if you will, take a little stroll with me for a moment down history lane. Where did the Samaritans come from? I mean, it looks like you've got a map in the back of your Bible, right? And you can find... That area identified as Samaria. And when you look at it, you're thinking, that's Israel. That, that, that should be the people of God. So where did the Samaritans come from? Many years before, many years before, the nation of Israel was fractured. After King Solomon and his son, King Rehoboam, came to the throne... Because of Rehoboam's unwise choices, and you might even trace it back to Solomon's sin and even David's sin, the nation was split in part. There was a northern kingdom that actually retained the name Israel. Ten tribes ruled by a guy named Jeroboam. And then throughout the years, many other kings that would come. In the south, there was another country. Two tribes made up this nation. It was called Judah. And thus, by the way, the reason that today the term Jew is used is because it is a shortened version of that idea of Judah. Those who are truly from those two tribes in the south. So what happened to the ten tribes? They're still looking for them, right? If you know your history, the lost tribes of the north. What happened? Well, they were ruled by ungodly people. There wasn't even a good king. Not one good king in the north. Not one. Can you imagine? And finally, God said, I've had enough. And the Assyrians came through and they destroyed that northern kingdom. You know what the Assyrians would do? The Assyrians were intent on really denigrating cultures, I would say even meshing those cultures together, trying to destroy the culture that was there in that land. So what they would do is they would take people from there and they would relocate them through their Assyrian empire and then they would bring other people in. And before you know it, you have all this intermarriage and you have all of this cultural exchange 
And thus it seems that the ten tribes disappeared into all types of other cultures and areas. Maybe, maybe I should say this. There became a specific group of people through this process called the Samaritans. So when the Jews looked at them, they didn't really know what they were looking at. They knew they were not fully Jew, but they also didn't knew that they were not fully Gentile. Strange place to be, isn't it? So they referred to them in the area, obviously, as the Samaritans. The Samaritans were despised. The bias of the Jews ran so deep. There was a breakdown of the culture. There was a mingling of the nations. The Samaritans, they ended up having their own religion, partly thanks to King Jeroboam. They had their own religion. They had their own place to worship, Mount Gerizim. They built a temple there that they hoped would rival the temple of Jerusalem. That temple had been destroyed again by their Jewish enemies. King John Hyrcanus in 128 B.C. had walked in there and he had just destroyed their temple. Again, inflaming the hatred and the hostility of the Samaritans back toward the Jews. They were a different race. They were a different culture with different customs, with a different religion. Chuck Swindoll. Yeah, I'm still quoting him. Chuck Swindoll said that the Jews saw the Samaritans as ethnically polluted, religiously confused, and morally debased. When you think about it. Luke, who writes the book of Acts, obviously shares a little bit of this type of perspective in his gospel. Now Luke, who I believe was a Gentile, the only Gentile writer of our scripture, who may have even been, and I'm almost convinced because of my trip, that he was a Greek. I'm working on it. He tells us about the attitudes of the apostles and the disciples of the Jewish people. He tells us about it really in Luke chapter 9. You remember Jesus is, is, is making his way through the countryside. They come to a village of Samaritans. And these village, this village does not really welcome Jesus. So he's got two apostles, James and John. You've heard of those guys? The sons of Zebedee. Also, the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. Now, I always thought that would be a pretty good nickname. In some way. You know, I was like, sons of thunder. That means they could bring it when they preached. Well... Some people have suggested that was the nickname, I'm, or, or that is the reason for the nickname is because of their preaching. I'm not convinced of that. I'm convinced that they got that nickname from like their attitudes, especially as it is reflected in Luke 9. Luke 9, what do they do? They say, well, Jesus, you know these people didn't accept you. We got a plan. What we need to do, if you'll be okay with it, uh, we will, we will call down the fire of heaven and we'll destroy this village. You know, sometimes if I'd been Jesus, I don't know if I could have kept my patience. 
I'm reminded again, every time that Jesus showed his patience to those folks, I have to show my patience to people like Dwight and stuff. That's what I've got to do, all right? And what did Jesus say? The Son of Man did not come to destroy lives. He came to save them. In other words, I know down in your heart it would do you nothing better to know that a group of Samaritans had been destroyed. But even then, Jesus reminded them, I've not come here to destroy people. No matter what type of bias or prejudice or even... I have come to save that which was lost. And then in Luke 10, the same Luke makes the Samaritan the hero of that story, the parable we now refer to as the one of the Good Samaritan. Luke, we use that. And he knew what he was doing because he was reminding them, just as he's reminding us here that the gospel can overcome every barrier and that all people have value in the eyes of God. Do you hear me today? It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter the background you come from. It doesn't matter anything else about you. There is inherent value in each and every person because each and every person bears the imago Dei, the image of God, and God loves us. And what God wants to do is through the gospel bring us into his family, no matter who we are. It was such a great barrier in that day. It even threatened the movement of the gospel. It was a threat. I think I've shared with you before is that when you look at the book of Acts, you'll see all kinds of threats to the kingdom. You'll see all type of threats to the gospel's movement, whether it's the persecution from Jewish or Gentile officials, or whether it's inward bickering like Acts chapter 6, or whether it is the geographical area that they're going to have to cover and the issues they're going to have to deal with there, there are all kinds of barriers, even a racial barrier. But what our God is proving through the book of Acts is he is greater than every barrier that will come against him. He is greater than anything that will try to stop his gospel. He is greater than anything that will push back. And his mission, his good news continues to go forth. You and I know that we live in a very fractured country and nation today. If you don't believe it, turn on the television. You know, I think that was one of the best things I enjoyed while I was gone. Not seeing any kind of U.S. news <laughs> I would catch every now and then some BBC, but they were so concerned about Brexit, I heard nothing about the United States of America, you know? I enjoyed kind of not hearing about some of the divisions and seeing some of the fragmentation. We live in a country that is fractured and fragmented. And there's still racism today. There is. And there is all kind 
of prejudice and bias, it saturates our land. And there are people today that are inflaming hostilities all around us. But I am thankful. I'm thankful for what? I'm thankful that the good news of Jesus Christ is bigger than all that stuff. I am thankful for the gospel, which brings us together. Because the gospel was greater, and the gospel is greater than any type of racial wall or racial barrier that we find. Look at this. Verse 6. The multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed, and the lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Do you see how extraordinary this is? A Jewish man shows up in a Samaritan village and tells them about a Christ who is the Jewish Messiah, who is also their Messiah, and what do they do? They believe. That's called the power of God and the power of the gospel. Because through all of that racial tension, could you imagine somebody just coming in and doing this and something happening in such a great way? You couldn't without the power of God present. You see, the Samaritans believed in some type of Messiah that was coming. They, they referred to the prophet as a Tahiv. Jesus has that conversation in John chapter 4. Remember when the Samaritan woman looks at Jesus and says, I perceive that you are a prophet. And what she is trying to figure out, is he the one that has been promised? And Jesus, of course, offers her living water. And Jesus brings her in to the family. And she tells and proclaims his, his messiahship to so many others. Here, they accept that Jesus is the Christ, and they have joy. It says there was great joy in the city. You know, joy is contagious, is it not? When somebody is joyful, it can be contagious. It can infect so many different areas of our lives. The gospel. When you break it down, it means good news, good message. Some years ago, I was, I was working through uh, one of the Greek lexicons, one of the uh, references that I had often sought. And as I was looking at it, it says that in some cultures, you probably need to uh, qualify that term in the following way. A message that makes the heart happy. I thought about that. I said, hmm, these are Greek scholars, and they've looked at it, and they say, when you try to put it in the context of other cultures, he says, maybe it's, you just say it's the news that makes the heart happy. For the Samaritans, they knew what joy and happiness was. 
because they had just been introduced to Jesus, the Christ, the Tahiv, the prophet that had been promised for centuries. There was the approval of the apostles and of the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 14. I, I know there is this side story of the sorcerer and Simon, uh, Simon the sorcerer, and, and I'd love to be able to get into that, but I don't have time today. I just want to focus on how the gospel just continued to move forth. In verse 14 it says, When the apostles who, who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Now, I think there was some skepticism. Because again, the Samaritans. So they say, we send Peter and John. But I believe that when Peter and John came to them, they did not come with skepticism. Not based upon their actions. Rather, they were there to celebrate how the gospel had just moved from the Jewish lineage also now to the Samaritan race. And look at what, how they respond. It says, verse 15, who, that is Peter and John, who, when they came down, <laughs> prayed for them. So they prayed for them. And it says specifically that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16 says, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid hands on them and they received the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And some of you look at me and say, whoa. That, that wrecks my theology. That goes against the doctrine that I've had. Again, I don't have time to flesh it out this morning totally for you, but let me just say, the normative experience of every believer is that when you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you at that moment. Okay? This is not the normative experience described. Why? This is a transitional period. I am convinced, I am convinced that the apostles coming down and approving of this and the Holy Spirit falling so that it would be manifest for all so that people would know that the Holy Spirit had come upon them was so that each and every person would know that God had validated his message and his news going to the Samaritans. You might even call this the Samaritan Pentecost. Just as the Pentecost of Acts chapter 2 showed that the Holy Spirit had come and that God was anointing these moments, so now the Holy Spirit comes upon the Samaritans. And eventually, the Holy Spirit will come upon the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. It is part of a transition. But the gospel brought the Samaritans into a right relationship with God the Father. And listen, listen. The gospel brought the Samaritans into a right relationship with their Jewish brothers and sisters. Do you see this? It wasn't just that they were right with God the Father. It's now that they are right with their Jewish brothers and sisters. And the hostility and the tension and the racism and all of those things now had been put aside. Because of the gospel. And I say to you this. The gospel is still the only hope. Racial prejudices and biases will not be cured by politicians, legislation, education, any other earthly thing. It will be the gospel of Christ that will transform our hearts and our lives. I love the way John Piper said it. He said, the push for racial reconciliation is not simply a social issue. It is a blood of the Lord Jesus issue. 
Where do I get that from? Ephesians chapter 2. You know what? I'm going to read it. I hadn't preached in a long time. I got to. I was going to say I'm going to let you. No, I'm reading it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I know he's speaking to Gentiles, and I know he's speaking to those who have come out of that life. But listen, listen. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household, the very family of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Did you hear that? Writing to Gentiles, he said, you are far off. You are aliens, you were, you were hostile toward God, but not just that, you were hostile toward the commonwealth of Israel itself. And what did God do? He broke down the wall. How did he do it? Through the blood. Through the blood. He broke down the wall. And what he's done now is he's put together... In Christ, one race, one family, one people. Hey, when you and I become a little bit prideful in our background and who we are, let me just remind you that most everybody in this place comes from a Gentile descent. Every one of us in this place, we're on the outside looking in. So what did God do? He came outside to where we were. And he brought us into the family. How blessed we are. How he broke down the barriers. How he broke down the wall. And he created a new rest. A new race. For now we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you are as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Our responsibility is to bring the gospel to bear on everything that we're about, all our relationships. Did you hear me? Our responsibility as a people 
is to bring the gospel and its impact to bear on every relationship that we have and to take the gospel from here so that it will break down the barrier that people have toward God but also so that it will break down the barriers we have with each other. That is the hope. That is the hope. I love that analogy that was used years ago about churches and whether or not they would be thermometers or they would be thermostats. Years ago, our churches were more thermostats, changing the temperature and the climate of the culture. But now, in many of our churches, all we're doing is registering the temperature of what we see out there. We're thermometers. My friends, we've got to get back to changing our culture and our nation and beyond. If it doesn't start with the church, who's it going to start with? If there's not some type of coming together as God's people, as we take initiative, then we will continue to see fracture and fragmentation. Don't put your faith in political schemes or political people. Don't put your faith in even educational opportunities, as good as they may be. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel, which can change and transform our hearts and the hearts of others. Because it is through the gospel that all barriers, even the racial barriers, are broken down. Let's pray together. Father, there are some in this place today that have come and maybe they come from different backgrounds. Maybe they come from different families. Maybe they come and they pride themselves on a Christian family. And while I celebrate the different areas and the uniqueness of each one God remind them today that there's only peace through your son the Lord Jesus and that Lord you love each and every one and that you are calling them to yourself Lord help us not to be prideful in our Christian heritage because we know Lord it is only by your grace that we've experienced that and Lord, we know even today we cannot ride that heritage into heaven. God, I pray that you'd speak to us and that you would draw each and every person here to your son, the Lord Jesus. And God, I pray for better days in our community, in our nation and beyond. And Lord, help us to focus on your son and the gospel. Help us as we promote that peace through you to others and help us to have relationships that are God-honoring and, Lord, that are beneficial to the community of faith. Lord, we pray now 
And we ask you to speak to us during this moment of commitment. Help us to repent in areas where we need to repent. Help us to commit to you in areas we need to commit. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?